0: Hey, everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Hey, friends, happy new year. Happy new president and vice president. We are hard at work here in Artist Soapbox land, launching into 2021 with projects aplenty. I'll share when I'm able, but be assured that much is percolating behind the scenes. I'm slowing down the podcast episodes, but I still have many to come this year. So please stay subscribed on your podcast platform of choice and follow Artist Soapbox on the socials and at artistsoapbox.org so you know as soon as fresh, fresh, audio goodness drops. Speaking of, oh my gosh, I'm so excited to share this episode with you. My friend, Okies, and I last saw each other about 17 or 18 years ago. I, <laughs> I couldn't quite figure out the timeline. That was when I lived in another state, which felt like another lifetime ago. A lot has happened in those intervening years. But this episode just goes to show you that a reconnection is just a conversation away. Hokis is an American poet of Armenian descent. She is founder and senior editor of Headline Poetry and Press, and her work is widely available digitally and in print, most recently in Indie Blues as the world burns and the Gloucester Poetry Festival's anthology Pandemic Poetry 2020. Hokis's debut collection On Becoming, Aesthetic Evolution of This Rising Ancestor is available on Amazon.com. For information, visit Hokies.blog, H-O-K-I-S dot B-L-O-G. See the show notes for links. Our conversation was recorded in December of 2020, but I wanted to wait to release it because it felt more to me like a beginning-of-the-year episode instead of an end-of-the-year episode. There is encouragement here and support. Very practical tips to guide your creative process. Great vulnerability and a generous sprinkling of inspiration. Ours is a grown-up and roving conversation that touches on many things on grief, the death of a parent, adoption, sexual trauma, identity, creative evolution or revolution, and how to write when it's very messy, and when you feel like you must. Thanks to Hokies for leaving it all on the table. Enjoy this episode. Hello, Hokies. Thank you so much for making some time to talk with me today. Thank you for inviting me. I know we're going to cover so many things in our conversation. This is all going to be centered around your poetic memoir, which is titled On Becoming Aesthetic Evolution of This Rising Ancestor. Mm. And I'm wondering if you could start our conversation with a poem.
1: I would love to. So I want to talk just a a second about this. This is actually the prologue of of the book. It's written in a Creative nonfiction, very short, very short creative nonfiction piece. It's called Thicker Than Blood. At the age of 22, I met the 63-year-old Armenian woman who had given me up for adoption. On the evening of that breathtaking day, I stood in her bedroom. We spoke through the reflection in the mirror in front of us. I felt small not in the five-foot way I was used to, but in the little girl in awe of her elder way. She spoke brilliantly of Yerevan, of roasted lamb, and the importance of skilled tailors, all the while disrobing in front of me. For the first time, my inner child was able to gaze upon the future of its olive-hued shape. This was not the tall, slim body of the European woman who'd raised me. It was the thick-hipped, unapologetic Middle Eastern woman. Her skin was freckled with moles like the moonlit sky I would often look up to when my restless soul couldn't sleep. I wondered if her heart might be reaching towards that universal moon and perhaps thinking of me. Until this privileged moment, I hadn't realized just how deeply I'd longed for this quantum entanglement. Mother told me stories of the Armenian genocide and how our Mount Ararat, after minutes passed the pause, she paused with intent as to say, pay attention now, my child. Her spine was straight, fully embodying her matronly figure suited up with a thick, strapped brassiere and delicate hosiery. It was then she told me that our ancestors leapt from Mount Ararat to save themselves from rape and murder, to save their children from earthly suffering. This drawn-out jolt caused my world to spin. I felt drunk and dizzy from skin and truth, skin, truth, and leaping to save oneself. Common themes of this survivor, I thought. I stood convinced she'd been looking over me through that universal moon. Why else would this be the first family story she shared? Even a generation and 22 years apart, we both understood patterns of victimization are more than skin deep. She has since passed... Resting in the galaxy with our universal moon, still our blood's knowing is with me. It continues to save me in those moments when I cannot seem to save myself.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that.
1: Mm. Thank you for listening.
0: You and I emailed prior to this interview about what we were going to talk about, and In your email response, I'm going to read a little bit of what you typed to me.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You typed, right now I'm thinking about how my process was born out of the space and actions grief took me. I felt in another world and version of myself. So I do want to talk about your experience of processing grief through your poetry As I heard you read the prologue, it made me think about how grief is also a story of survival Mm. and survivorship and how the stories that we tell of our families often centers around both of those things. It's like two different sides of the same coin.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that.
1: Well, the first thing I want to say is that processing grief is a luxury. Mm. Uh, It's it's necessary, but it's also a luxury. You know, I had the freedom of space and time and safety and support. You know, I could sort of disappear uh, into my writing without a lot of burden of ordinary, you know, just regular day stuff. You know, I have a spouse who works full time and we have a home and there's food on the table and those kinds of things. So. I always just like to pause and make note of that—that that some of these fine tuning of ourselves and our growth and our evolution are—it's re- it's really a luxury that a lot of people don't have. So I guess what I what I've come to understand, kind of, with what you were just saying about processing grief and family, is that to me, grief has become this the the, the understanding of it has become. That it's not so much about losing a person, but it's losing the identity that you and that person formed. You know, sort of there's a a third person, the relationship, right? There's me and there's you and then there's us. And the closer someone is when you pass, the more, the bigger that third entity sort of is. And it it just it disappears or it gets ripped away, depending on how someone passes, um, how much you've been able to prepare yourself and them for that process. So like I have two layers of grief. One is um, sort of this ghost layer, this ghost loss, if you will. I'd, I'd never met my birth mother when I was born. You know, I was born, and you know six weeks later, I was in another person's home, and growing up knowing I was adopted there was always this sort of ghost mother or ghost father that was never quite with me, but sort of with me. And so that was kind of growing up with grief existing in me for never having met the actual third entity, you know, so sort of forming what I thought that relationship was. And then when my father passed, we were very close and we talked very openly and Sort of were generous with each other in preparing for him to go, and that when he left, I was very much at peace with him as a person needing to go. He, he was tired; his body was done. He had done what he needed to do, as he would say, it was time to make room for somebody else. He always had this sort of, you know, growing up and during the depression, you know, on a farm, there was this cycle of life and the necessity of space so when he, when he left it was it really was my grief process was what do i now do with that third person that's you know that relationship that we had and those parts of me i was attached to and needed to hold on to either for my identity or for his comfort or however you know that is we're we're all codependent in some way Because we depend on each other. But there was a lot of stuff that kind of freed. And it was a surge of not knowing what to do with all that. And that was a lot of energy to place and, yeah, momentum to do something with. I love this idea of, like, the the third entity and how we manage
0: that in our lives. But the loss of those things was not the only grief you were processing in this memoir. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask something that is, it seems technical, but I don't feel like it really is mm-hmm. necessarily. The question has something to do with how you take all of that energy that you're talking about and you translate it into words on a page. What was that process and how long did it take?
1: How did you sort of manage all of that? Yeah, <laughs> The easy answer is, I have no idea.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes, exactly.
1: The second answer is, I had to or I would have imploded. So it's a little bit like, okay, you were just in a car accident. And how did you know to undo everybody else's seatbelts first? Or, you know, the, the car is submerging in the lake. And how do you know to unroll the window, you know, before you... You know, it's it's sort of like that. It's just like you're in this dangerous situation is what it feels like and you have to you have to do something, right? So you just start. And so one of the things that I did was control all the inputs. You know, so every piece of information that came into my mind, I I controlled it. And what I mean by that was I took a job at the public library reshelving books. And I could put my headphones in all day long as I as I worked, and I didn't have to talk to anybody. So I could listen to music. I could listen to the same song for seven hours if I needed to. I could listen to podcasts. I reshelved words all day. I limited myself to about three friends. I had a writing coach who I trusted, who I would send things to. I think probably the emails between us are about A hundred times larger than the book is. Mm. Um, So, so this control of inputs allowed me to take everything in, right? So, I so I didn't have to filter all the things coming in. So, for a, a small example, is I remember very clearly walking to work one day and I was listening to a radio lab called "The Beauty Puzzle." It's about It talks a lot about birds, and I don't know if you've ever watched a nature documentary where these birds are just like, you know, they have these, they're all black until they want to mate, and then they flop some amazing bright green, you know, plume Mm. from their head, right? Or they clean up their nest immaculately and put flowers up in the front. You know, it's, they do these amazing things to attract a mate. The idea is, what if we're choosing from beauty? And not choosing from fittest, right? From Darwin, right? right. Like, like what if we're, we're actually um, choosing from a completely different thing than we thought we were? And it was, they talked about this concept called aesthetic evolution. And I was about a hundred feet from the library when that word and that definition kind of popped up in my head. I was saying in my head, aesthetic evolution, aesthetic evolution. So I wouldn't forget it, right? Aesthetic evolution, aesthetic evolution. And my writing coach just so happened to be walking out of the library and was ready to start a conversation. And I was like, no, I can't. I have a title. I have a title in my head, you know. Mm -hmm. So I went right into the office to those little like golf pencils, you know, or not the the library, right? The library, the little golf pencils and the torn up pieces of paper. And I just wrote aesthetic evolution, right? And stuck it in my pocket and was really happy. Didn't go through the laundry. (laughs) <laughs> but but when I could control the inputs I was and I don't mean limit them I just mean allow everything that my eye was drawn to to be amplified I had a lot to work with a lot came in during the day and then it it became about map making so I think a lot of my poems start out as kind of a map so there'll be words and phrases that kind of twist and intertwine and the world starts to make sense in a different way. It's like I've taken all the puzzle pieces that already existed and then just put them in different places and then I'm, I'm able to see it differently. And so that's that's one of the big pieces of, of the how, the how did I do it?
0: I find that when I am more intentional and more selective about, as you, you're describing them, the inputs, then it is easier for me to to determine what resonates with my internal world, more like a tuning fork, you know, I can yeah, hear. Yeah, tuning or, fork, yeah. I can hear the resonance there, but if, if there's too much, it's just noise upon noise. This is a side note, but I was talking to somebody who had recently started seeing a therapist. And my friend was basically saying that she had no idea of her own opinion. And so one of the exercises that her therapist had her do was to go to a grocery store and look at the produce and choose something that she wanted. Mm-hmm. And when she was describing this to me, I was, I was laughing because I <laughs> often have very little understanding of my own preferences because there is so much noise around and so the idea of standing in a grocery store and asking myself like do you want an apple or do you want an orange and not being able to answer that question <laughs> it it was it was very funny and very yeah. sad at the same time but if there is if there's quiet if there's silence if I can sort of narrow in and just listen to that very quiet tiny voice i can hear it and then i can have more of a conversation with both my internal and my external at the same time.
1: Yeah, and and you know, as you were saying that, I I think this also gets back to kind of what I was talking about with uh, with the luxury of growth. That when we have the luxury of letting the wound be raw and accessible, like that's a luxury, right? Yeah. It's, it's raw, but we don't we don't always have the privilege of having it accessible, right? then you can feel when it's being poked at. So if I'm walking around the world with my my wound right there, then I know what salve is. I know the tonic, but I also know the salt. Like what is agitating it? And I I don't think I realized it till just now, but I, I think what I w- was part of what my something part of me was trying to do was to rid my life of the salt. I don't mean like, like don't interact with the world and don't ever do anything that's difficult. I, I more meant all those, well, I, there's a line in the, in the poetry book that talks about letting go of infantile crimes, right? Mm-hmm. So, so this idea that I was dependent on a man's view or, or this idea that my role was to take care of, of everybody, to calm, to make sure th- not rock the boat. I was very much a servant, not just a caretaker, but a servant. So all of these kind of ways in which my codependency with my father and my family limited my adult life, my, my emancipation, if you will, from, from childhood all of those were salt that still existed. And I was only going to be able to grow through this if I could both heal the wound and identify the salt. Yes, I love that because we...
0: I think culturally we are taught to soldier on, right? You just and yeah. you talk about your soldier's hip in the in the memoir, and yeah. we just keep going, no matter what. It doesn't matter if you're walking on, you know, you're, if you're crawling on your hands and knees, just keep on going. And so you called it a luxury, and it is. If you have it, also can be necessity yeah. to stop and tend and tend to your wounds and clean them out and and heal. I'm grateful that you took the opportunity that you had the ability to make space for that.
1: It's also a responsibility, I think, because you can't lead where you haven't been, right? So if you have if you have the time and space and the luxury and the ability, it is a responsibility so that you you can hold those spaces for other people and you know those people that don't maybe have the same kind of luxury, small gestures or small Moments of holding space or permission or word choice, even when a conversation with somebody or, you know, saying to somebody now, right, like your friend can say, I don't know, go to the grocery store and see what kind of fruit you like, right? (laughs) Like, it doesn't have to be some deep moment. It can just be sort of the way that you, you know, you interact with somebody um, as simple as an apple or an orange. So yeah, responsibility.
0: I want to swing back around to aesthetic evolution because you mentioned it and I remember reading it and thinking, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And even better, in your book, you have a glossary, which I think that every, we should all just carry glossaries kind of in our back pocket. Yeah, This is what I mean when I say, you know, so in your glossary, you have aesthetic evolution, A Theory of Evolutionary Psychology in Which the Aesthetic Preferences of a Species Have Evolved to
1: Enhance Their Survival.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. Yeah,
1: right? Well, I kind of already said the bit about the birds. Mm -hmm. That's that's just really astounding to me. In terms of the, the book, first of all, I'm very influenced by science. Like let's just get that out there because it's all it's all over the book, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think probably I should have dedicated it to Radiolab because there's probably half the poems at least have one or two lines that came from some thought or idea or concept that I freaked out when I listened to Radiolab. I think uh, the underlying current of of that concept in the book is the idea of love uh, as a a beautiful subtle thing that isn't, uh, it's not a Disney film. It's, there's no savior. It's not romantic and sexy lingerie and lots of muscles or long hair or, you know, whatever that is, right. It's the beauty of it is sort of this comfort, this trust, this, uh, you know, people talk about being married and being able to exist in a quiet room together with no discomfort. Right. And I'm not saying that's what it is or that's what it isn't. It's just a, a different way of thinking about it. And there was a there's a difference. There was a, a growth with me where I began, as I began to grow up, um, as I let go of these identities, as I was talking about, uh, that I formed f- both for my father and then uh, for my family, there was always this sense that love was complicated and you had to kind of manipulate yourself into corners and to please people by pulling out this part of your personality at this moment and that part of your personality at this other moment, that it was hard work in in ways, I mean, it's always work to be in a relationship, but for me, my thought about it was it was really hard work, almost like a psychotherapy session on steroids was what love was to me. So this idea that we might simply choose things because they were beautiful struck me as so much the opposite of what I was trained to think of what love was, or what growth looked like, or any of that.:
0: Yeah, there's oh,
1: there's so much there. I, I love this idea
0: of our tastes evolving to help us. Survive, and this idea that our art, our writing, is also connected to our survival. It's a tool that assists us in in growth and sort of making better
1: our world
0: in a really important way, not in a superficial way, but in a deep human. Connected survival way, and I just keep coming back to that word, uh, survival. Um, and I don't know if it's because this has been just quite a year, but um, <laughs> that word keeps coming up for me in conversations about what you
1: have written. Yeah, you know, to go back, you know, my father and I preparing each other. There's two. There's two moments that come to mind with this, uh, in particular. One was before he died and one was a conversation I had with him after, after he died in a dream. And uh, one of them was uh, I would stay with my dad for a weekend when my mom would have a break. My my father was uh, severely handicapped. He had, it's not MS, but it's easiest to describe it that way. He couldn't, couldn't get out of bed by himself, couldn't walk he could type on a typewriter and he could eat, you know, put food up to his mouth and that sort of thing. But he, it was hard for him to put eye drops in at night. So uh, brush his teeth, you know, stuff like that. So we would, we would spend a, a lot of time at night, me, my 120 pound self and him, his 190 pound dead weight, you know, disabled self, moving him from the wheelchair to the bed and scooting him up so he was in a good place uh on the bed and doing his eye drops and putting stuff in his mouth and giving him his medicine i mean it just all took like you know an hour and a half right to right. do all that so my it's a lot of work and so my mom would go away for these weekends and i would stay with my dad and i can remember uh laying i would sleep with him and i would lay in bed and he had a very bald head and uh I would always lay my hand on his head when we talk because it was just really relaxing and it wasn't a medical touch. You know, it was, it was a comforting touch. Right. And we were laying there, uh, talking about uh, my dad was also very interested in people and motivations of people. And he thought about being a counselor. He was a teacher. He and I had just a lot of deep conversations in our life. And, uh, I was talking to him about my older brother, who's a lawyer. And I said, you know, I I just don't understand. He's just so, it's just so hard. He's hard on himself. He's hard on us. He's, he's just so judgmental, you know? And my dad says, uh, well, think about what, think about what the top position in his job is. And uh, I was like, so as a lawyer? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, well, that would be a judge. (gasps) Oh! A judge. Oh my God. It makes perfect sense, right? And I said, okay, so if that's if that's what his top position is, like what's mine? You know, because I'm I'm like, I've been like, you know, I've been a teacher, I've been a body worker, I've been a writer, I've been a, you know, this, that, I've been all these things. I don't know what I am. So I said, What what would I be? And he paused and he said, leader of the free world. And that was like my dad's way of saying you you are. You're way bigger than you thought. You know, don't think of your brother as the metric. So that was like a freeing. That's like a large, a larger giving. And then in a dream, I had this crazy dream. My son was looking at colleges. And so I was with my son and we we're at this strange college with a moat around it. It was connected to this research facility. And at some point I couldn't find my son. And so I was like running through the halls, like a James Bond, you know, kind of episode and go, running up the corridors and it turned into a hospital. And then I walked into this white room and there's all of these people next to my dad in this very white medical kind of room. And my dad was laying down and I touched his hand and he had this bruise on his knuckles, sort of if you if you could imagine like kind of where the thumb is. So if you were to just rest a pencil between your index finger and your thumb, Mm. kind of in that meat, there was a bruise, like a pencil was weighing on it. And the moment I touched that, my dad shot up and looked at me and said, you must write. And I was, I woke up and I was like, whoa, right. Okay. Got it. And then, probably about two weeks later, I was reading something I'd written to my therapist, and she goes, You know, you must write. And I was like, What the hell is going on with this? Right. So it was that must, right? That emphasis and that like standing to attention. You must write. And until that point, something like that for me would have been like this frivolous thought. Like it's again a luxury like me taking 3 years to write a book. Like I could be making, you know, $4,000. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> right? So, um, but that must, it's so true you you just have to. You have to. And I I don't even know why you have to. You know, like I could say you have to or you'll go quote crazy or you have It's just part of breathing. You just have to like you breathe. It's um yeah, you just have to. Yeah, that's a
0: very clear message. I'm glad that you accepted it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it hardly get
1: clearer. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right, right.
0: Um, I wonder if now would be a great time, speaking of writing, uh, would be a great time for you to read another of
1: your pieces. Yeah, I, I'm going to read one that is actually about, it's a short piece. It's the It's the last poem in the book. I think before I read it, because I'm looking for it, I want to say a couple of things my about my father. My father was a carpenter, uh, a woodworker, craftsman, teacher of craft. That's important to know. So this piece is kind of about my my father joining my birth mother up in the sky. And it's important to note that uh that my father really encouraged me to find my biological family and was hugely a part of that. And would consistently call me his adopted daughter and my brothers always thought that that was like disrespectful, but really to me, it was more like he was confirming who I was. You know, he was affirming it. I should say that that was a part of who I am. Uh, It was uh, something to be proud of. And he would, uh, he would oftentimes do a lot of private investigative work um, on my behalf to find you know, phone numbers or addresses or names. So it's important to know that he was he was key in that. So this piece is called Leader of the Free World. In the parlor, she decides to finally take out the baby skin smooth walnut carpenter box. It was gifted to her by father time two years ago, a month before he boarded the train home. Inside, pink-laced baby shoes, a single-jeweled crown, and a plaque which reads, Leader of the Free World. She looks back up at that universal moon to offer her a prideful grin. They return the sediment. Hokis, they whisper, may you rise in peace. Thank you. That is
0: beautiful. I think that this would be the right time to transition to talk a little bit about identity. And I want to reference back again to the email that I talked about at the very beginning of our conversation when you said, I felt in another world and version of myself that I learned we can consciously choose the version we want to be, need to be, to rise to any moment. Those ideas lined up with this political moment, another theme in the memoir, are striking to me now the me looking at the woman in the story saying, I want to be her. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about the thread of identity that Mm -hmm. runs through this memoir and the work that you did in in pulling these pieces together.
1: Mm. So when I started writing, in general, I didn't know it was going to become anything. It was just me writing. I would have some pieces I would write that felt like I was I was limiting my writing like I was, again, writing through the people pleaser or being like hesitant in what to say or how to phrase things, you know, feeling nervous that I was going to hurt somebody's feelings, even though it was just a piece of paper in my journal. That's how deep that runs. Isn't that crazy? Uh, And somehow that you're not allowed to have like a secret thought. That's also something to maybe talk about just this idea that you belong to a bunch of people and you can't have some secret. It's bad to have a secret. It's really weird. But anyway, so as I started writing, it was this idea again that I was, I was putting words on a page that were going to cause harm or that it was my truth and it wasn't exactly the truth or did that actually happen or what's the consequence of me, you know, confessing this or outing somebody on that or, whatever that was and and then there were times where i i was in a different headspace like i did not feel like i was really existing in any form of the realm the dimension of the world that we've all grown accustomed to existing in i would hear people talk and words would sort of float in front of me that they'd said that i needed to pay attention to or I would be reading a book and a sentence would just pop out at me and uh, I could turn it into a four page poem. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it was just, everything was, uh, I was definitely like hooked into something. And so I, I found myself struggling between these two kind of states and really liking the one that saw the words floating out in front of me. You know, there was a new freedom to that, that I, I hadn't really felt before. And I I think it was that have to, you must, sort of that, a different kind of drive that really was completely authentically inside me. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was was no awareness of other people's needs or thoughts or anything. And so I, in both writing and feeling that, I became to get to know what that part of me was and i i think it was actually right after i wrote the prologue which i think i wrote pretty much after all the poems in timeline but you know how you write things and they don't go in the order where they right right but there was something about that that made me start to identify with that ancestral larger part of myself that existed before me and will exist after me and i remembered when i met my birth mother when I was 22, she called me Hokis, which is uh, Armenian for my soul or my beloved. And so so I kind of, that just floated around in my my consciousness and it it became, I sort of tried it on, right? So if I were Hokis, if I were my soul, her soul, the soul, the beloved, my beloved, you know, however you want to look at it, who's saying it, how would I write this, which is different than, than me, who my name is Jill. So who, how would Jill write this and how would Hokeese write this, right? And it became so evident to me that my work, my work, I say that at the time, I didn't think of it that way. But, you know, it, I was more freed by being Hokeese than I was Jill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was more free and so i could I could start to see things from a much larger perspective, so if you took you know there's a theme in the story which you've so delicately avoided about sexual trauma and sexualized trauma that is has always been difficult to communicate because people so instantly go into this anger and hate and kind of hyper masculine ap- socially acceptable way of looking at those situations in which there is one perpetrator and one victim. And it's typically a male and a female, right? And so I've always been uncomfortable with that because everybody's story starts before the event. There's a lineage to that and some of that is ancestral and some of that is how people were raised. Some of it is people's biology. Some of it is um, what was enabled by families or what was done to somebody else. So the part of Jill who takes care of everybody didn't like writing that story because she wanted to take care of everybody. But if I take take that ideal, which is part of me, right, taking care of everybody, uh, that's not always a bad thing. If I can put that on a broad spectrum, then how do I actually tell the story and help everybody? right right and so it's it's in in buddhism they they call it from the balcony like you can see things from the balcony i wrote a lot of little bits and pieces i don't know whether it was in you know on twitter posts when i shared a poem or actually in a poem i can't really think of it right now but like sitting on the rings of saturn and telling the story from that place that's kind of where the identity idea comes from and then it gets really interesting because if i can do that just with a mindset then I can sort of do anything with a mindset, right? I can really shape my life and my choices and my story with the mindset that I choose and then I start to sound like an Oprah book, which I don't really want to do. I mean, I'd love to be on oprah don't right. don't get me wrong, Super Soul Sunday would be pretty cool only because you know she's close to my angelo and my my Angelo's close with james baldwin, so if if I could just. <laughs> You know, like sit in a chair with somebody who's talked to somebody who's talked to somebody. That would be really great. But there is there is this idea that we really do create a reality and that's powerful, both dangerous powerful and empowering powerful. It takes a, a lot of responsibility to know that.
0: All of the things that you just said about identity and about how we shape our personal identities and how other people and how we give agency to other people in shaping ours. There's so much there to talk about and tease apart. I know we don't have time to do all of that right now. I guess I just want to say that I find it all very moving and powerful. It definitely resonates with me, the work that I'm trying to do both personally and professionally and the work that I see other other people doing. So I just want to thank you for Mm-hmm. for this particular moment of our conversation.
1: Thank you. It's it's wonderful to be able to talk it through in a different way and share it. Is there anything that you would like to talk about before we wrap up, especially
0: as it relates to your creative process?
1: Mm-hmm. There was this process I went through um, that involved a lot of insomnia. <laughs> mm-hmm. I did a lot of writing in my sleep or would wake up, like literally writing in my sleep. I remember one time I, I was cuddling with my husband and I woke up and I was tapping on his shoulder to figure out the syllables in a line of poetry. While I was asleep, I was doing that. But what it what it came to be was I would read something from bouncing around in a book. I would just read a sentence or two or a whole page or... So, just till something struck me that was resonating with with everything I was processing through the day, and then my brain would just work with it at night, and I would wake up in the morning or sometimes in the middle of the night and just compulsively write stuff out and I got to the point where I needed to type it because if i didn't, i wouldn't be able to read what i wrote i was mm. very I was very clear that it was very legible <laughs> and then the next day at ten in the morning, I had no right. idea what it was that process of putting something intellectual in and then, and then letting, letting the sleep world take care of it and then regurgitating it out and then going back into the world and letting all these words and thoughts and images, uh, interactions kind of sit in you and then you go back and you find the sentence or that resonates with what you just let in that day and it just becomes this cycle And then pretty soon you're writing sentences that you know will go in a poem, but may not go in the poem that the sentence right before it that you just wrote was. So you just end up with a bunch of lines of poetry that find their way in at some point. So I think, I think what I'm trying to say with all this is it's messy. It's Mm -hmm. not, it's not, uh, I have a thought and I do this. It's, it's really a lot of stream of consciousness and just taking the time to write all that down. And like you said, a tuning fork, you know, that, that, certain sentences or words or thoughts make you go, huh? And other ones make you go, huh? And then other ones go, hmm. And then you start to sort them in that way. It's very powerful.
0: Yes. I love that. I have also, that is also part of my process, what you're talking about. It's this beautiful kind of, it's almost like fermentation, you know, Mm -hmm. you just you put the ingredients together and you let it do its work and then yeah. you know everything bubbles and then gets real tangy and you know yeah. af- after a while you have created something that is new you know sometimes it explodes if you're not careful but um right yeah. but <laughs> i think of it sometimes like it's almost like word confetti you know you're just yeah. all these little pieces like a little snow globe just kind of floating around and then you're sorting them and letting them settle and trying to reimagine the combinations. And once I got over sort of the lack of control, like that I needed to surrender to that experience, that it was Mm. good. It was good to have that happen. Then it became delightful, a delightful surprise. But at first I Mm. felt the need to come out, Like put the ingredient in the machine and Mm -hmm. then, you know, push a few buttons and something comes out, it's perfectly formed and it's ready to go on the shelf. And, you know, I could sort of make that happen through force of will, but it was never the best product. And the process was kind of gross. (laughs) Yeah, right. Right, right, right. So look what I made. It looks like everybody else's thing, you know? And so this is better. This is better, although it takes time and patience. Yeah, and
1: and you know, the process is the product, right?
0: Right, right, the, so the, much.
1: The thing at the end is just this thing that we can touch and share with people, but it's the byproduct. This book is the byproduct. It's not the product.
0: Right, oh, I love that, wonderful. Well, mm. would you please...
1: Mm-hmm. close
0: us with one final piece.
1: Yes. So this one I'm hoping will kind of uh, demonstrate the mess of it all because in all of this, grief was a questioning of my marriage. And a lot of the taking care of that I talked about before and the overcompensating, you know, it it created an imbalanced uh, existence. And it was co-created. I didn't do it. He didn't do it. It just was what it was. And But there was a lot of well, I think that people will recognize the themes. So, this one's called Firestorm Winds, which I have to say that that term came from an episode on, I believe it's Terry Gross on NPR, talking about Firestorm Winds in the middle of the California fires. So, just so everybody knows Firestorm Winds. Kiss me like you are grateful for me that I exist. Not because I am special, but because my flesh and blood are alive now on this planet. Because I chose you to heal me. Because I trusted you to embrace that honor and you promised you would. Kiss me like you want me, not want to want me. Not to prove you are worthy of love, not to avoid loneliness not to feel you've won me in the secret war men have over the territory of cunt. Kiss me with the cellular knowledge that I am, the only combination of the lonely bones entwined in a moving heap, frozen in space-time, in apartment in the Paris of the Middle East. An address now occupied by the flags of ISIS joy fear and gun-shaped fallacies kiss me in a way that honors the struggle of the international incident that i am kiss me in a way that makes up for all the angst guilt and secrets my existence spawned kiss me like you are grateful for the spark for the infidelity that i am Kiss me remembering I was once a child, conceived around the corner from the now refugee quarter. We children need to play, to be taken from the truth of our species. Play kick the can, hide and seek, dress up, to overtly and intensely pretend. Kiss me as if there is no end, no climax, no satisfaction. Because there is now, and that is everything, and enough. Kiss me remembering that luscious switch that turns off the noise. Do you hear the noise? Believe in the switch? Needed as I do? Kiss me as an act of rebellion. Our breath, the firestorm winds, can reach the wounds of my ancestors. Reignite my land with purpose no power to own no power to win no personified missiles flags and territories covert operations no pushing and pulling against gravity no thrusting forward like marathon runner no winning the race only to leave orphans behind sometimes my story is just my story my decades of walking Then I wake to remember my DNA dances with the story of distance me's, you's, us's, them's. Swaying in rhythm with each other and every act that did or did not happen. I need you to help me forget this burden, or she worries. In my orphan scurry to make it all go away, I may very well forget you in order to survive. This is what orphans do, this is what survivors do, this is then what I do, she wonders. This is not my wish, yet it's not up to me. Nature pushes me to thrive, the firestorm winds are calling me.
0: Thank you so much, my friend, for your poetry and for this conversation today. I am so grateful, it has been restorative to speak with you. And so I'm, I'm very grateful.
1: Thank you so much, Tamara. Do you
0: know what's happening with Artist Soapbox? Have your ears missed our original scripted audio fiction? Well, come on and listen to the Declaration of Love Anthology, The New Colossus, and The Master Builder. Get up to dates on patreon.com slash artistsoapbox and become a patron of the podcast. Please see the links in the show notes and at artistsoapbox.org. You can always reach out to artistsoapbox at gmail.com. Stay in touch. Thanks, friends.